Good morning, everyone. Let's pray before we read. Our Father, our infinitely great God, hallowed be your name. We just give you all the praise and glory this morning, God. Lord, we thank you for your kingdom come, your will being done. God, that you are delivering us or you have delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into your kingdom of light. And God, you are doing a sanctifying work in us and we are so grateful for that. God, so grateful that you, and we ask that you would cause us to walk increasingly worthy of you, pleasing to you, God. Lord, we thank you for your will being done in the circumstances that we face today, the events of our world, the places that we are in, and the things that we are struggling with. God, I thank you that you give us everything that we need, that you give us our daily bread. God, that you give us everything we need for life and for godliness. And Lord, we lift up those that are especially struggling today or suffering today. Those in hospital, God. Those that are struggling financially and not sure where, how they're going to make ends meet. Lord, those that are suffering in their bodies. Lord, we lift each other up to you. We just pray for that and thank you that you give us everything that we need to walk through the things that uh, we face. God, thank you for forgiving us our trespasses. We ask that you would forgive us, God, for not loving you and being devoted to you as we should. Lord, for being so easily enthralled, as the song said this morning, by the world, enthralled by other things besides you, and God, not loving each other as you've called us to. I ask that you would forgive us. God, help us to forgive those who have sinned against us and who have trespassed against us and hurt us and offended us. God, I ask that you would help us to work things out with each other, that we could walk together in unity, loving and serving you, God. God, thank you for working in our lives, teaching us to trust you and to be content uh, in all things, whether we're in a storm, whether we've got want and need, or whether we've got plenty. God, would you incline our hearts and open our eyes and give us understanding to who you are and what your word says today. We pray this in your name. Amen. Um, this morning, we are starting in the Gospel of Mark, in the first chapter. And so, Lord, as we read, give us understanding. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. 
John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descended on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Good morning. How is everyone? Uh, I appreciate being able to preach here today. Um, it's a fantastic piece of scripture. I have a friend uh, named Tamara, and she is an award-winning teacher. She's in BC, and they've given her like teacher of the year type stuff. And in interviews, she talks all about pedagogical environments and learning metrics and, and all that stuff. But when she's talking to us, we say, how, how is it that you're such a good teacher? She says, Leighton, it's like this. You tell the kids, we're going to have fun. And then when you're doing the lesson, you say, aren't we having fun? <laughs> and then at the end of the lesson, she says, didn't we just have fun? And what do the kids say? We had fun. So this isn't just for you young people that are stuck here. Uh, this is for everybody. We are going to have fun. This is a fantastic uh, part of Scripture. Uh, there are two things that I didn't know how to stick into the message, so I'm just going to say them first. There are two little facts you want, you want to know. Uh, the word land, land, place, land, is one of the most common words in the Old Testament. Uh, I have heard it as common as, it's the fourth most common word used. Now that probably means like place names, as well as the word land and other synonyms and stuff like that. But I want you to know, land, one of the most common words in the Old Testament. Uh, and I also want to just briefly read from Exodus 4, um, 21. This isn't on the PowerPoint because I'm making it up as I go along. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, so this is right after the burning bush. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. Now this is singular. Israel, the nation, is one. 
Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go that he may serve you. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. This is way before Moses goes back. The Israelites go through, you know, everybody, the plague and all that stuff. I just want you to hear that too. First thing, land, super common word. Second thing, God calls Israel his firstborn son. Okay, now we can go to uh, the beginning of Mark. Here's a little recap uh, for those of you that don't remember two months ago when I was here or weren't here at all. Uh, Mark is a man in a hurry. In the last sermon, we found that Mark's breakneck speed is actually deliberate, though. He is an expert communicator, and he has a twofold purpose in what he writes in his book. Mark wants his readers to know who Jesus is and what it means to be his disciple. And that's it. His little book is laser-focused on addressing only those two things. The Gospel of Mark is completely shaped with this in mind, and he reorders events in Jesus' life, he omits things that the other guys include, and he crafts a narrative that is exciting and fast and compelling and simple. Far from being the inferior sibling of the other Gospels, and Mark really had a bad rap through the last 2,000 years, far from being the inferior sibling, Mark writes to put Christ's person and ministry front and center, and he leaves the theologies and the histories and the genealogies and all that for someone else to worry about. And they do. There is great richness and deep thinking in Matthew and Luke, which rely on Mark's gospel extensively. Uh, And John writes his own gospel years later, in some ways as a response to how the church has received the first three gospels. Today we are going to round out the rest of Mark's introduction. And I had Brenda read the whole thing, uh, 1 to 13. We covered 1 to 8, which is talking about God's, or Jesus' divinity. Jesus is the Son of God. That's how it starts, right? And how God has come to his people in Jesus. Now these next five verses show Jesus' humanity. How Jesus was flesh and blood and relied totally on God for strength and leading through baptism and temptation and life. So Mark, the book of Mark, starts with the words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and then goes on to prove these words, showing how the Old Testament prophecy that predicts the regathering of Israel after the exile and the giving of the Holy Spirit would be marked by an Elijah-like figure. Somebody in the future that looks like Elijah is coming. So when John the Baptist appears, looking and speaking like Elijah, there was just no question whether he was a prophet of God. Everybody from King Herod to the ruling establishment, that's the Sadducees and the Pharisees, to the crowds, just the common people, they all knew God was speaking once again to his people. And the people went out. Scripture says, John called all to repentance and baptism, and they responded in droves. Again, this was a super electric time. There was a national excitement. After 400 years of silence, God was on the move again. Um, Looking at verse 5, 
And all of the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now the nation was abuzz. And there were lots of other guys too trying to capitalize on this fervor. After all, Israel was a distressed and oppressed people. And when false messiahs and insurrectionists came along claiming to be somebody, people followed. But Mark takes great pains in quoting scripture and showing that John was the forerunner that was predicted by the prophets and that he would be the herald of the Messiah, who is Jesus. Now, because Mark is really only interested in the facts and spends very little energy on explaining things, when we move from verses 1 to 8, introducing John and what baptism means, to verse 9, where we are introduced to Jesus and his baptism, we are left out in the cold regarding the why. We know what happens, but why does it happen? Why does Jesus get baptized? Verse 7 through 9 say, And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but you but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. You know, Nazareth isn't ever in the Old Testament. The, the name Nazareth doesn't show up in any Jewish writings or any extra writings besides the Bible until Jesus of Nazareth comes. This is like nowhere of nowhere. And yet that is where God calls Jesus out of. Why would Jesus the Christ, the perfect one, the son of the living God, go down to be baptized by John? Why would the one who would baptize others in the Holy Spirit submit to a watery baptism that was just linked a few verses ago to the confession of sin for forgiveness? This should strike you as absurd. And it did for John the Baptist. So remember, Mark is just too busy to worry about the details, so we have to go to Matthew. He slows things down, and he records John's protest. Matthew 3.14. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to baptize, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? John saw the problem and objected. Why would the sinless one get baptized for the forgiveness of sin? got to tell you that the explanation of this is fantastic because it's big. It takes the whole of Scripture into account, and I find this stuff very exciting. We're having fun. (laughs) The simplest reason for Christ's baptism comes from John. So let's look at John 1, 29 to 31. The next day he saw Jesus coming coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we're going to address this a little later. This is he whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was, ju- he was before me. And this parallels Mark uh, 1 verse 7. Um, after me comes one who is mightier than I, right? I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water. So this is the big ears up. That he might be revealed to Israel. The first reason Christ was baptized was that he might 
be revealed to Israel. So the whole emptying of the countryside to repent before John the Baptist, the whole baptism of Jesus in the Jordan, the whole institution of baptism, all has to do with Jesus being revealed to Israel and thus to mankind. We can think Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. All of it reveals Jesus. This means that John's message was not just for ethnic Israel, first century Palestine. As we'll come to see, baptism becomes the entry point into the new kingdom for all who belong to the Lord. And it's an external response. This is something we say around here when talking about baptism. It's an external response to the inward reality or inward change that happens, uh, showing that Jesus is at work in someone that he has revealed himself in us and to us. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the entry point. Jesus is the entry point into the new kingdom of God. So that's step one. Now we'll look a little more broadly to see what the rest of Scripture says about baptism. And we're going to go to 1 Peter 3. I was corrected earlier today. It's 1 Peter 3, uh, 20 through 22. God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So this is super interesting. Peter calls Noah's flood a baptism. And that's going to give us some clues. Paul does the same thing. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud the Holy Spirit, and all passed through the sea, the Red Sea, we're talking to Exodus here, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. And the people of God were baptized into Moses because Moses represented God. It's just like David as king stands in for God. So that's where that language comes from. But the crossing of the Red Sea was, is considered a baptism. And they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was, Jesus, was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And we'll come back to this too, this wilderness theme. So Paul calls Israel's passage to the Red Sea a baptism. Putting it together. In the days of Noah, eight people entered the ark, and the rest succumbed to the flood. Later on, in the days of Moses, God saves his nation Israel with the waters of the Red Sea. But those same saving waters judge the unrighteous Egyptian oppressors. So biblically, baptism is a crucible in which the righteous come through and the unrighteous are destroyed. Think of it this way. Each time the many go through the waters... Some emerge, and some do not. 
And that really sounds like the narrow path, doesn't it? That's Matthew 7. According to Peter and Paul, two of the most significant stories of water in the Old Testament represent trials, tests, in which many perish while only a remnant emerges. Scholars call these watery ordeals, and they are thematic throughout Scripture, meaning they recur and carry a similar symbolism throughout the Bible. And this is key to understanding Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River. In Exodus, after God rescued Israel from Egypt, they grumbled and rebelled from him in the wilderness and were forced to wander for 40 years until that whole generation passed away. Then, the next generation was ushered into the promised land with a parting of the Jordan, like a mini Red Sea. And they too passed through a baptism event. Moving forward, in the promised land, when the people of God fail to live in obedience and dependence, once again, God has the nation of Babylon punish them and carry them off into exile. So we're moving through scripture here. In exile, he uses the Persian king then to beat up the Babylonians, and he lets them, the remnant of Israel, get to go back home. But, and this is what wrinkled my brain. This is amazing. At some point, at this point rather, some theologians assert that only they only returned physically and not spiritually. Spiritually, the nation of Israel remained lost. Because notice, there's no real record of them passing through the Jordan again, meaning they aren't baptized back into the Lord. Theologian Greg Beale says Israel actually remains spiritually in exile until John the Baptist calls them back into repentance through baptism. Therefore, when Jesus Christ, the blameless one, called the firstborn son of God throughout the New Testament. Remember, he calls Israel, the nation of Israel, his firstborn son in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus is my firstborn son. In, in the New Testament, uh, he passes, Jesus passes through the waters of baptism, and he once again leads Israel through the Jordan, back into obedience, back into righteous living. He gets baptized into Israel, and then all who would be Israel from then on would need to be baptized into Jesus Christ. That's fun. Next, God shows himself, and he declares all of this to be so. Verses 9 through 11. In those days, Jesus from Nazareth, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven came and said, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Now all of this is predicted in the books of the prophets. The rebellion, the exile the return, restoration, everything. But we're just going to look at a couple passages from Isaiah 63 and 4. Uh, now you need to know that everything in Isaiah is kind of divided into two parts. Everything before Isaiah 39 is about Israel's punishment and exile. Everything after 
Isaiah 39 is about their return from exile and captivity. Verse 10. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who has caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them, baptism, to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths? Like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make yourself a glorious name. So the question that the people are asking is, where is our rescuer? Where is he? And the response is here in 64 verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. This is what they are calling for. Verses 10 and 11 of Mark says, when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. Same words. And the Spirit descended on him like a dove, and a voice from heaven came and said, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The heavens are torn open at Jesus' baptism into Israel. That same word is used when the temple curtains are torn apart at Christ's death. The heavens are wrenched apart. Now a seam that is carefully opened up can be mended. But fabric that is torn cannot be restored to the way it once was. And I think there's meaning in this. Things are going to be different. The heavens have been torn open. And of course the heavens are torn open when the thunderous voice of God booms. He who has been silent for four centuries, 400 years, now shakes the earth to announce his son, his firstborn son, the long-awaited fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Now this announcement ties two prophecies together. The first one is that one of David's descendants would rule over the whole earth forever. And that begins in Psalm 2, you are my beloved son, and then it grows throughout the Psalms. And the second is from Isaiah 42, with you I am well pleased, which is about a figure in Isaiah called the servant. And this servant proves to be the one who will suffer for his people in later chapters. Now, no one saw this coming. No one saw these two prophecies fulfilled in one man. Isaiah 53, verse 5, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. No one was looking for a divine king and a suffering servant in the same man. This is a big reason why people reject Jesus. Think about it. Without the Holy Spirit's illumination, this all sounds crazy. That the Holy One would suffer. 
that God would die for the sins of his people. But that's it. That is the wonder of the gospel. That is the astonishing truth of the good news. And the Trinity is present here at the baptism. We see the affirmation of the Father. We see the coming down of the Spirit onto the Son as the Son comes up out of the water. And this marks the beginning of a new kingdom where those whom God calls are made faithful, empowered by the Spirit to confess sin and to live dependent on God through the righteous work of the Son. All because Jesus submitted to baptism and later death, leading his body, the church, through baptism and their own death. Jesus gets baptized as the faithful one of Israel, and the church, the people of the new covenant, in response, get baptized into him. But Jesus' submission doesn't just end with baptism. Instead, he continues to faithfully endure all the trials fraught by man. Moving to Mark 1, verses 12 and 13. The Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and angels were ministering to him. The very same Spirit who anoints Jesus for ministry, confirming his sonship and his trajectory of mission, drives him now into a period of unprecedented testing. Jesus is driven. He is cast. He is forced. It's the same word used when Jesus drives out demons and the money changers. The Spirit casts Jesus into the wilderness, the unsafe wild, the place of death and threat, to be tempted by Satan for 40 days. And here, Jesus, true Israel, reenacts the 40 years of the Hebrews in the wilderness. But instead of being in community, Jesus is alone. Instead of having all the manna and quail and water that he could want, Jesus is forced to fast and to thirst. But instead of succumbing to sin, as those in the exodus and the exile, Jesus remains sinless. Where all along Israel works disobedience in the wilderness, Jesus works righteousness. He alone is obedient and true, faithful and holy. He alone emerges from the dangers of the wilderness, the wild beasts and of Satan, vindicated and upright, served by angels, the holy beings. But note this. In the book of Mark, the devil never leaves him. This is clearly, this clearly means that the temptations of Christ are never really over until the triumph of the cross. And Mark is careful in this way to show Jesus' trials are ongoing, which is something we will look at in greater detail in the next two sermons. So Mark is terse, quick in his description of Jesus' baptism and temptation, just five verses. But it's here that we are introduced to Jesus the man, the fully human servant, willing to live in total submission to the Father. Again, we ask, why was Jesus baptized and tempted? Well, to be revealed to Israel as God's firstborn son, the only faithful and left. Long ago, 
Israel began as just one person who became a family and then a tribe and then a nation. But at every expansion, we see rebellion and rejection of God. Every human endeavor fails. Only Christ, only in Christ is the remnant of Israel faithful. Only in Jesus is Israel righteous. In the Jordan, Jesus is baptized into Israel, just as those who would repent are baptized into him. In this, Jesus both acknowledges God's judgment of Israel and identifies with the sinful in need of a savior. He crosses these waters, the waters of the Jordan, afresh, signifying the entry point into a new spiritual kingdom, which in every way is an upgrade from the old covenant's physical kingdom. In the New Testament, the word land isn't really used anymore. It's maybe used once, twice in Galatians. One of the most important and readily used words in the Old Testament is largely absent in the New Testament. Baptism into Christ is the baptism of the Jordan, where the rebellious enter the promised land, the land of abundance, the land flowing with milk and honey, through Christ. And this is no longer a physical place, but it is now a kingdom not of this world, quoting Christ. In this way, Christ becomes our land. He becomes our home, the dear inheritance of those who belong to God. Mark is quick to just give the facts, leaving explanations to the other writers. So let's finish by looking at Matthew's explanation. Chapter 3, 13. When Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. This is the reason that Jesus gives for his baptism, to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. And coming to rest on him, and behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Thus, Jesus works righteousness where all others work disobedience. His baptism is both a foretaste of his death and a prelude of his resurrection. Christian, because Jesus passed through the waters of trial and the temptations of life. Because he alone was righteous and obedient, and because he was the sacrificed lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, you and I can be clothed in his holiness. You and I can be elevated to his status. You and I receive his inheritance and will be resurrected like him unto glory in the presence of the Father. This fulfills all righteousness. Amen.